welcome to Healing Generations, a podcast creating a dialogue uplifting the importance of healing, strengthening, and supporting our communities, and that addresses the disparities and inequities in communities of color. Healing Generations is brought to you by the Healing Generations Institute, a collaborative initiative of the National Compadres Network and the Brotherhood of Elders. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on our new releases. We're very blessed today to be able to listen to the teachings and um, counsel of La Maestra Concha Salcedo. Uh, La Maestra is a PhD psychologist. Uh, she's also a wisdom keeper, a healer, an icon in our community. It's been trailblazing for many, many years and advocating for the dignity and respect of our traditional ways, of our indigenous ways, but also um, for the respect of, of the generations of medicine that we carry and that all indigenous people carry. Maestra Concha was one of the first PhD psychologists, and especially as a female, a Chicana, um, really opened the way for a lot of us uh, that knew in our spirits that, that we had something uh, to give and that we uh, carried something in our tradition but didn't know how to articulate that. La Maestra began then talking about the concept of la cultura cura, or that culture that cures or that healing medicine that we, that all indigenous people, all people of color carry within them. And so she brings that those teachings to us today. I was very blessed to be able to spend some time with her and uh, interview her and have a dialogue and listen to the history uh, that she had to walk, uh, the struggles that she had to get through, but also the counsel of what helped her get through and what kept her on that path. And uh, and I think it's very pertinent for today in this time in which we're you know, in the middle of a pandemic uh, for COVID-19 in which it causes you know, us to shelter in place where we've had to kind of hunker down with our families and even go inside individually. It's challenged us to, to get closer to those things that are significant to us and to really reassess, you know, what's important in our lives. The other pandemic, though, that is facing us is the pandemic of racism that for uh, people of color have uh, been facing for 500 years, and but it's now uh, again raised its head, something that many of us uh, have been struggling with and have been advocating against for for many generations. And, and we hear in Concha's, uh, Maestra Concha's story, about how long that legacy and even how far it goes back. So I was very blessed to to really have this interview, whether it's going to be broken into two parts. This first part will be uh, um, this week, and the next week we'll listen to the second part. But this first one, she talks about history, and she talks about culture, and she talks about those teachings that come along the way as we uh, move on this journey of healing generations. Let's listen to Maestra. Thank you, Jerry. Um, first of all, I want to thank my ancestors, all the tatas that came before me, and all those teachers around me. And I want to thank you also, because I know your work and the good work that you have done, so that if I helped in any way, um, I'm thankful for that. And you asked a question, who am I? Now, that's a difficult uh, question to answer, but I'll start with, first of all, I'm the daughter of Carlos and Rosa. And uh, they were very uh, parents who saw something in me and nourished it. Uh, And so much of what I do now is really what they taught me. And and one of the things that my father used to say to all of us, and we were girls that grew up, the the boys in the family had died, and he said, if you have any talent, you must use it not only for yourself, but for others. So that has always been a kind of a guiding light of... uh, thinking, is, is this just for me, or is it really uh, for other people as well? And that if I have some talent and some brain, then I need to 
utilize it in such a way that it grows and expands and can help other people grow and expand. So I think in some ways that's the essence of me, that I truly can say I love people, human beings of all colors, you know, of all genders now. And I guess I was, I was uh, taught to serve and in in a, and serving people say well what did, what does that mean that um, you're giving yourself to others well yes uh, in order to help the others become who they can become and you know what what else who what else am I who else am I a person that loves to laugh you know I think that's a healing. Uh, I love good stories. Uh, I like making bromas on people <laughs> and people on me. Uh, you know, I think I'm. I think I'm musical. Mm. You know, I love rhythms and movement. You know, and song, uh, because all of life is movement. Right from all of life is movement, and right now. You know, these days that we're living uh, in 2020, there's a lot of movement. And uh, with movement, I think I've learned one has to be careful. If you're not careful, you stumble and fall. I would break my hip and I would be done, right? So I think I'm all of those things that make uh, a human being, you know, um, and it really all stems from my ancestors all the way back through my parents and through my sisters. I'm, I'm the youngest and I felt I was always pushed around and I thought they were bullies, but they weren't. But being the youngest, I learned how to negotiate because the same with cousins, I was always the youngest. So then it means you have to learn how to move through that maze of, you know, older people. And what else am I? I, I like to think of myself, and I don't like these terms, but um, I think I have an open heart. But I also have an open mind and an intellect, and I like to use it. I like to think, and not just think, but reflect, particularly at this time. I'll say my age now. I'm 85 years old. You know, people say 80, some people say I'm this, this young. No, I'm old. And I'm happy to be here. <laughs> you know, I'm happy to be 85 and in relatively in good health. Um, and that I can laugh. I can laugh at myself. Uh, I'm a person that doesn't have regrets. You know, I can look back and say, yes. I made that mistake. I made that error, and I have made plenty. But, que puedo hacer? It's done. I'm not going to do the same thing again. But living with regret, to me, seems like a waste of time. It's also, um, the other thing is a waste of time is worrying. Why worry? You can use that time to try to resolve what you're worrying about or to recognize that maybe it doesn't have a resolution and let it drop to the side. But, you know, when I work with people, I say, hey, it, you're just wasting your time worrying. You know, the same as wasting your time complaining unless you take an action, right? If I don't, that's a, I'm a per, I think that's the other. I, I learned to be a person of action uh, watching my father. And my mother and father were uh, immigrants, but they came here in 1927. Uh, at that time in Mexico, there was the Cristero movement. And my father, and it was a movement with guns and everything. And my father was involved in that, very much so. And uh, my mother and father weren't married yet. But she had a good friend in the government, in the revolutionary government, who said, you better tell to Novio, that he and his family better leave now because they're on a list to be removed. 
So he, that's, he and his family left immediately. And they had compadres up here in Sacramento and in San Francisco. And then my mother followed. Uh, her, she had, her brothers wouldn't accompany her to La Frontera. And she said, well, I'm going anyway, whether you accompany me or not. And so then they gave in. She got married by proxy, right, in Texas. And then, so he had that strong of faith and a man of action. So when he, he was here, he used to work a lot with, um, there was a band of priests who were social action, social justice priests, and they worked with los campesinos. So I was the youngest, and so I wasn't in school always, so I would go with my father when he was helping organize and preaching, because he was very Catholic. And uh, I think I learned from that, you know, and from my mother as well. And one of the things I learned, I never heard her complain. I never heard her. And she had left all her family. She didn't see, and she had um, eight brothers and sisters. And she left all of them behind, and she didn't see her mother for 30 years. Because in those days, everybody was poor. They were poor there, and they were poor here. And uh, but she d she did a wonderful thing. She helped us connected to Mexico. Um, we would uh, send magazines that they liked, and we would write on the margins of the magazine, or we would put things that we had made, and uh, we would write to my abuelita. And for years, I thought that was my abuelita's name because I said abuelita, right abuelita, right abuelita. <laughs> Later, I found out that my abuelita's name was Rosa, as was my mother's. And um, I think there's another aspect to me is that the lineage, the native lineage is Yaqui. And, uh, you know, the Yaquis never gave up. They could never be put down. And um, so I think that strength comes through. You know, I believe in cultural DNA. It's there. So all of those things, to answer your question, uh, I think all of those things make me me. Very powerful words. Um, you know, and it uh, took me back to, you know, to growing up in my family, too. You know, one of the powerful things that, that she mentioned was talking about her father and how her father had to move because he was on a list. Uh, he was on a list to be... Uh, tortured to be violated to probably be killed and you know it it reminds me of of how this has been going on for a long time as many of our you know african american brothers uh, definitely and many people of color as well feel like they're on a list on a list uh, to be disrespected to uh, be violated and to be killed we we saw that in with uh, mr george floyd and so you know Maestra reminds us that that um, that this struggle has been going on for a long time, but she also shares the teaching of you know why be worried, uh, why complain, if you're not going to take action, and so she gives us that counsel of that we can dialogue about something, we can complain about something, we can worry about something, but if we're not going to take action, then then what good is it? Why should we uh, use our energy that way? And she began then also sharing about in her process of living in this country, of li living in this society, the impact that it had on confusing her, confusing her about who she was and who she is and, and if she had value or had any type of worth or voice. And it uh, caused her to, to, to go back to Mexico, her village, and, and, and search out her own identity and that she went to a curandera, a healer, traditional healer. And the healer asked her, well, so what do you want? And she says, well, I'm looking for my voice. I'm looking for my purpose. And the healer says, oh, you need to be healed. He says that was very profound to her because she didn't realize that the reason why she couldn't find her voice and she didn't know her purpose is because of all the generational trauma, the oppression, the misguided uh, words and, and uh, the inequity and all the racism that now had been internalized in her. And so she talks about the importance of uh, social justice 
really requires the, the, the need to, to know yourself, to know your purpose, and to be connected, to really be connected to, uh, to who you are as a people, who you are, and know the worth uh, that you carry and that your people carry and the medicine that, 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 uh, that you carry. But it's a journey. And in this next segment, she, you know, she talks about you know, some of those struggles, uh, some of the things that she had to confront and, and uh, stand up for. So uh, let's uh, continue to listen to the master. How did I find myself, Willard? Um, it starts in college. Well, you know, I, I went to Catholic schools and uh, very good education on one side, uh, but all the prejudices of white nuns a class prejudice as well as racial prejudice. And so I always felt um, like I didn't belong there and that there was something wrong with the way they treated me and the few others of me that were there. And, you know, that stayed with me. And at, at that time, I was also a person that uh, did not talk a lot. And uh, you were taught to respect those elders, so you didn't mouth off to the nun, to the sister. <clears throat> and so then in college, it began, uh, I began to see, well, maybe I need to, I need to speak up. Certain things happen in college. And uh, I went to College of Notre Dame in, uh, in Belmont, and... Um, I ran for uh, the president of the resident students. And I think there was one other Chicana and then people from Central America, but wealthy, um, and then one black person. But all the others were white, uh, but they wanted me to run. And uh, the sister, one of the sisters who was head of, the, of that part of the convent came to me and said, you know, uh, I don't think you should run. And I, I kind of go like, she says, well, you don't talk enough. And I go, oh, to myself. But it made me so, it made me very angry, very angry, because I knew it was about something else, a number of things. She had a, uh, another girl that she favored, and she didn't think I would be able to do it. That was the bottom line. And, and I went and hid and cried. I would never cry in front of them. And you know who the them are. But I won. I won the election. And I learned to talk. talk. Well, the thing was, everybody talked a lot. And in like a meeting. And I would listen to them and say, well, why is she saying that? That's already been said twice. There was that like need to, uh, to talk so you could be seen. And I don't think I had that need. And my family was not, we didn't all just talk a lot. You know, you were there present with people. Uh, so how is that connected to the question? Um, so I, I think I began to form an idea of righting wrongs, right? Now, this is a little aside, but it's related. When I was about seven or eight, we lived in the country, uh, Niles, um, which is part of South Alameda County. And I formed a mystery club. We were going to solve mysteries. <laughs> We'd cut out of the newspaper, but, and I love reading mystery stories, but that idea that there is some wrong out there that I could somehow help to make right, that was kind of forming. And the, and these, and I had a lot of kinds of experiences, you know, and saw what was happening. Uh, and at, at some point, I, I, we worked in the fields, so you experienced that. And, you know, at that time, they would sell you water. You, you couldn't drink water, and there were no toilets, and, you know, all of that. All, all of that began, what was the word? It's uh, like simmering within me, you know, taking heat, taking heat. And then, and this has to go back a little bit, I... Um, I had rheumatic fever in, uh, uh, when I was 10 and nearly died. And, you know, those experiences create uh, a change in you. And 
on my 10th birthday, they dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. And my father took me aside and said, you know, that is immoral. What they have done, that's immoral. And do you understand why? I said, yes, but I didn't understand why. And it was a number of things, because he was a, a peace person, but it was also why it was dropped on the Japanese, uh, the racial undertone. So, all, you know, all of those things just sit in you. And so when I first, when I graduated, and I graduated young from college, it was um, the peace movement uh, was happening. And so I became involved with Ban the Bomb and um, people working for peace. And then that was a, a quick leap to working for Chicanos because then I went and moved to Gilroy, uh, which was very much country then. You know, and half the population were Mexicanos, campesinos, and the other half were the white people that owned the land. And I was the first... Uh, Chicana teacher that they had had. And my field was history, but they said, no, you teach Spanish. <laughs> because, and this is the kind of the misogyny, because all the men taught like the social studies classes, and the women taught English and languages. And then in the business department, it was mixed. You know, so all of these things are happening, and I'm I'm young, I'm 20, I'm 21, and experiencing these things. And then I just saw so many things that, uh, and experienced so many things there. And uh, then I got married, and then uh, we began organizing among the migrant workers. Because at that time, and people think it's bad now, that time they were literally living in chicken coops, right, without cleaning out the chicken coop. Right, so uh, we used to. I used to go and do uh, puppet shows with uh, with the children, and so you know all of those things. And then at that time was the beginning of uh, Cesar Chavez, and so and a little before that, I had gotten involved with the civil rights movement with African Americans, and then so it was a kind of a, a growth process that happened and uh, transition. And uh, I knew, I didn't understand it at that time. I knew at one point I had to leave my husband and go on the trek from Delano to Sacramento for that Easter way back. And all I knew at that time to say was, I have to do this. Because I began feeling that I was, that going through college and having a certain education was separating me from who I truly was. Uh, and so I had to be there. And that began the process again of reconnecting with my roots. Uh, because for a time, I became a socialist. Well, now, I'm, now I am still, but a democratic socialist. But I was more socialist, communist. And... Uh, no, a kind of, I left the Catholic Church and the institutional church. Um, and I was married to a, a man who was a sociologist and very intellectual and all his friends. And it's the Vietnam War and, and they're having intellectual discussions about the war. And I'm going, what is wrong with you? That war is wrong, you know, period. And um, so that, you know, it, it it's a process that happens to one. Uh, and I was never afraid of action. And I had been trained um, with CORE, the Congress of Racial, uh, of Racial Equality and the NAACP around peaceful methods of resisting. And so it fit with everything else. And so little by little by little by little, I became involved in what we call the Chicano Movement, and then uh, returning to my own roots, going to Mexico, uh, to Oaxaca. I went to Oaxaca for 20 years and uh, connected with a woman there, uh, Doña Amparo, who taught me many things, uh, uh, particularly about 
that spirituality and the healing practices. So when going back, people were having intellectual discussions about the war. I realized that there was like no spirit connected to people and that I felt I had lost that spiritual connection. And so part of going back uh, to Mexico and particularly to Oaxaca was to, I kept saying when I met Doña Amparo, who who uh, facilitated uh, sacred mushroom ceremonies, I came to find my voice. And yeah, I used to like to sing. And I thought, maybe that's what I'm talking about. And she says, ah, vino para una curación. He came for a healing. And that's what I had come. And so then that opened up the door. Wow, some very powerful words. Uh, as she says, uh, you know, I knew it wasn't right. And, and I knew that I had to be part of righting the wrongs. But that it was painful, so painful that uh, when she was told that, you know, she wasn't smart enough or didn't have a loud enough voice or didn't speak up enough, uh, that she didn't let it stop her, but it caused her to cry. But she went off to the side to cry. She says, I would never cry in front of them. And how many of us uh, do our hearts cry inside when uh, when even we walk in a room and recognize we're want, not wanted or, or we're not seen in, in our educational systems or history or on TV? And more importantly, when we feel um, don't feel safe in our communities and don't feel represented by those people who are supposed to re- represent us. And at the other end, where we feel targeted, that we're uh, going to get hurt or killed or that our children, you know, uh, don't feel safe. And, and you know, as a father and as a grandfather, I worry about my children and, you know, and having discussions with the Babas, you know, and, and the uh, African-American relatives of that conversation that they have to have, especially with their boys, uh, not even when they're young men, when they just grow up and look like young men, um, but they have to reground them, and but they have to prepare them for that struggle. So the maestra talks about that, the, the, the importance of, of knowing who you are, but uh, having uh, people around you that can, that can reground you and, and help you, uh, you know, be able to, to speak the truth uh, for social justice. Let's go on and, and, and listen to uh, maestra as she you know, begins to enlighten us more on, on, uh, on the aspect of how we can heal, but ground ourselves in that, the sense of our sacred purpose as well. You know, I, I found looking back, the, the Chicano movement that I was involved with was very political and social, but didn't have any spiritual aspect to it. And people got lost in that process. Uh, so I was looking for the spiritual indigenous uh, aspect, and that's what I found in Mexico and found here, and made that kind of connection, which gave me back a spiritual life that was not the institutional Catholic Church. I mean, I feel I can, I can pray anywhere, but I like to pray outside. You know, I like to pray with my redwood tree. It just, to me, nature is a manifestation of the Creator, and of creation. And so that's what connects me not only to all of that, but to other human beings. So that's how I got. And then how did I end up doing the things I did in psychology and all of that? Well, I, I, um, I went back to school after I got divorced and got a, a master's in history. And uh, 20th century... Uh, Mexican history. And then, you know, they started organizing Chicano studies programs. And so I worked in the first Chicano studies program at uh, San Jose Community College. So that got me into that kind of... And then, um, you know, I taught for a time in in, uh, ethnic studies at UC, Chicano studies. I was the second woman but they were, I was already in a different progression. They were uh, kind of caught in, um, you know, all Chicanos have to be socialists, right? <laughs> and then they called me the, the cultural the nativist or something. But I, I never went for any of those labels. 
you know, I was just exploring everything and exploring it because I was always a little older than everybody. So I was a little always further ahead in the exploration of things, of just rediscovering. So um, I discovered a lot of things, interesting things in Chicano studies because it was primarily all men and they were still stuck in being men uh, in a certain kind of way. So it was difficult for any woman that was in that group. But then later, it's an amazing thing, and they were supposed to be radicals, but they weren't radicals in their interaction with students or with their colleagues. Later, I had an opportunity to teach in the School of Social Work at UC, and that's a very, essentially, it's a more conservative place, but they would leave you alone. If you did what you were supposed to do, and if the students uh, respected what you were doing, there was no problem with what you would do. So, you know, and, that, and, here, and, and that's kind of the difference when people haven't had time to reflect on who they truly were and what that meant if you were going to be a, a radical Chicano or Chicana, that it was both. Um, but that wasn't happening at that time. And I think I, I taught at most uh, as an instructor in most uh, universities around here. And then I decided, uh, I, and then again, it was a, a new college here in San Francisco that claimed to be new college, a very open. And they asked me and a number of other people, an, an Asian woman and an African-American man, uh, to come and look at their curricula in uh, psychology uh, to see if they were, you know, doing a more appropriate kind of psychology. And uh, we looked through everything and made some recommendations, and then they offered us a course to teach. And we said, well, there needs to be something more. We need to see what uh, books are being read. What does other people's curricula look like? And then they said, oh, no, you can't do that, academic freedom. And we said, well, if you want to make a change, we, if they're reading the same books uh, and teaching the same theories, we're not in any different place. There's no cultural appropriateness here. And then I, I co-taught a class, and we decided, the, the other teacher was African-American, that we would bring in... Uh, uh, Afrocentric psychology to examine that, and then I'd have people come in from uh, northern natives and from Chicanos and Latinos, and the class was re pretty receptive. Uh, but then someone said, "Well, why don't you bring in uh, a Jewish uh, person?" And <laughs> I have to laugh. I mean, I, I could have been more uh, finessed it more. I said, "Well, why?" Everything that is in the curricula is, if you look at the last names, it comes out of a theoretical, theoretical framework that starts with Freud, and we're talking about something else. Well, that created an alarm with the powers that be there, and they said, well, maybe uh, you should come back another time to teach. I said, I understand what you're saying. Well, you know, people complained. I said, well, I was telling the truth as I saw it, you know, and you wanted to have uh, a different kind of emphasis. Well, it couldn't be there if you didn't have the materials. And so then that's when I decided I'm not going to play around anymore <laughs> in these universities. Uh, I'll just do teaching in the community in however way people want me to do it. And that's what I've been doing. And I'm still doing. As we listen to her teachings, um, once again, she reinforces the, the importance of a spiritual base and talked about how when she experienced some of the movements, and um, especially she mentioned the Chicano movement and some of the other, that movement, and that there was a very strong political uh, fight and even against the, uh, the Vietnam War and all of that, but that she didn't find that there was a strong spiritual base. And, you know, from my uh, living, um, you know, the life of, of, of being around uh, for that, you know, the first uh, 
the uprising in the 60s and then through the Rodney King era and now, you know, and, and then dialoguing with, with elders of those movements, we recognize that the movements that really took, uh, that took stronghold had a spiritual base. And she really advocates for that, that spiritual base as a necessary part of a political action as well. You know, but that it's important also to to know your history and to know your culture and to read the right uh, the books, because the books that are given to us tell us a false history about who we are. We must know our authentic history, our authentic culture, and read about the social movements that have come before to help us prepare for that uh, next phase of life and 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 our next movement that we need to build. And and so La Maestra, you know, really. Uh, emphasizes the sense of, of our cultural rootedness, our cultural knowledge, and our spiritual base as, as, a, uh, as a grounding point for us uh, moving together and moving along. Uh, in this next segment, she, she talks about also the, how that, uh, the woundedness can get inside of us and get in our relationships, how it can affect the way uh, our partner relationships, male-female relationships, our family relationships, uh, the colonized thinking that can get into uh, to us as well. And so let's listen and, and uh, see how we see it impacting us today. Let's look at what it was like before, before the invasion of the Spanish and the French. You know, how did men and women relate to each other? Was there one was better than the other? Uh, one was less than the other? And what I discovered that though, though you had very distinct roles, there was uh, equal value to the role. And that's the difference. Yes, you were making the tortillas, but the husband went out and had to get the corn. You know, and you, and you couldn't do one without the other. But that shifted uh, when the invasion came because the Spaniard came with a different view of women either put them away in the castle or not think of them as persons. And what happened was what we call, I call the psychology of the oppressed, that you begin, which is a natural thing, you begin identifying with those who have power. And so if you were a man and saw the Spanish man doing whatever he wanted to do with whomever he wanted to do it with and treating women in a certain kind of way, then you adapted, not because you were bad or evil, but because you wanted to survive. That's, a, you know, bad things happen out of survival sometimes, and we can see it now. We see the people on the street doing certain things because their bottom line is to survive that day. Right, so out of that survival, another capa, another layer came over our cultura, which was, it's not its true essence. And people say, well, that was, that was you know, 500 years ago or more. That's true. But in our DNA, we carry those other ways. Um, you know, I see it when uh, I used to go out on the street more when I was at Instituto down to the corner. 24th and, and uh, Mission, where one of the gangs hung out there. And, you know, to talk to them and to let them know what, what uh, offerings we had. And, you know, they would always, uh, of course, I was older, but, you know, I held my ground with them because I would say, okay, you know, you're hanging out and you tell me this is your turf here. Okay. I said, I can claim all of it, every corner. <laughs> And I said, but if you claim it as your turf, you should take care of it and take care of the people that come through here. You know, when La Viejita comes by, why don't you offer to, to carry her bags? Oh, but we've tried that. But, you know, they look at us, este modo y el otro. I said, of course, because you're standing there in a position of power and mad-dogging everybody. You know, I said, how old are you, 15? I'm not afraid of you. I can slap you down, right? They would use humor, right? To, to um, so I think, and I also found that any time that we went out, when there was a shooting or something happening in the community, we'd go out with the smoke mm. and a little drum, 
and go to wherever it happened with some, sometimes with the danzantes if they could, sometimes not. And we would, you know, we would pray and we would clean that space. And inevitably, there always been some young little bato, yeah, what's that stuff that you, excuse me, well, what's that stuff that you're doing? I said, that stuff is you. You know, and we'd get into a little, you know, at first they'd kind of look, but they were drawn to the smoke or they were drawn to the drumbeat. And that comes from 500 years of carrying all that inside of us. So Maestra talks about uh, in this segment, you know, that the, <laughs> the even some of the false ways that, that uh, the, have come into our culture. Uh, that have affected male-female relationships. Uh, she talks about misogyny and and uh, when the Europeans came, that they introduced a different way of how we should relate to each other, how we see each other as males and females, how we see elders as different, and and uh, how we see children different. That that the Europeans had a whole different way of of looking at valuing people, and and there was a hierarchical system of valuing people as well. She called it the uh, psychology of the oppressed, the colonized thinking. And she uh, says to us that we also have that now in us. And it's important that we spend time healing, decolonizing, detoxifying uh, from those ways and learning our true sacred ways, right? That, that, uh, that the sacredness is still in our DNA, that is there, but we have uh, the wounds there as well. So this process of healing really is about weeding our gardens, uh, weeding the, the, the oppressive ways and the indoctrinated, colonized toxicity that, uh, that, uh, that is in us. And that's really important even in our movements, even in the work that we do and, and how we approach the work as well. Um, but she mentioned something real interesting, you know, even in the wounds, we, we end up having to respond to, to the woundedness. And, and she shares a a story about when uh, someone had died and there was a you know a violence and, and a death and and in our tradition we go out and and uh, take the medicine out there, take the traditions out there, and maybe even take the danza out there, right? And and she lit some uh, some kupal and some sage and and offered some prayers, you know, for uh, for the the families that were struggling, and that there was a youngster out there that says, well, what is that? What is that smoke? And she says to him, you are the smoke. So, well, what is that dance? You guys said, oh, you are that dance. Well, what is that, that medicine? This is, you are that medicine. Well, what are these ways? And she said, you are the ways. So she reminded that youngster that uh, that, that stuff is in you. It's there. And it's important for us to recognize that in spite of the woundedness and the colonization and in spite of even uh, some of these ways that we have... Uh, we've picked up that are that are not healthy for us that it's never too late that we recognize that we have that the strength within us you know that that uh, within our culture all of these things uh, uh exist right there before us so let's listen to the maestra again as she uh she you know talks to us then about you know what do we need to do how do we heal ourselves you know in uh, in sometimes this very toxic and very oppressive world as my understanding of it, and as it's developed, that universally within each culture, there are elements and activities that have been used traditionally to take care of oneself, to heal oneself, both physically as well as spiritually, uh, as well as emotionally, and that we have those ways we know but have forgotten or have been taught. And I still uh, do teachings, uh, trainings with um, interns that are in social work and psychology. You know, and, they're, and a lot of them now are in PhD programs and they come, you know, all eager. And the first thing I have to tell them is, I'm not going to talk about anything that you're learning in school. We're going to talk about what you need to learn to work with the people. Uh, to explore that, because the theories that come out of uh, Western psychology come out of that culture. It's natural. It grows. But they're not all universal. There are many things that are specific to a culture. 
And so, you know, for us, I think the spirit, the spiritual, is essential to our cultura. And so we have to be healed from only being in our heads and take a walk down to our heart, right? And it's a long walk sometimes, particularly if you've been in school a long time. I mean, that, and that's why I had to go to Mexico, the 10,000 miles up, uh, to find that again. Because otherwise we do damage to the people. You know, help the people. And I don't know if you met, I think you probably met Tlacaele when he was here. And one of the things that he said to us one time, he says, remember, you are the medicine. Right? And that's what I say to people. You are the medicine. The medicine is within you. And then sometimes you need a little help to get it out. You know? Someone to help trigger that memory again. You know, one of the things that... Um that I uh, remember in this interview is is the, the the powerful teaching of that she presents of taking a walk from your head to your heart, and that sometimes you know that is a painful walk because we carry many different things in our heart, um, blessings and love, but also sometimes hurts that we have to to heal from, you know, and and uh, that that healing energy that that we uh, carry within us is so important. You know, and, and, and when I think about, um, you know, how we manifest that in our relationships and how, you know, what is the teachings that we want to give our kids and our grandchildren, and especially right now, because, you know, it's a very difficult time. How do we teach our children and our grandchildren um, to, uh, to persevere, to stay strong? What are the things that we want uh, them to know and them to integrate um, in their lives, you know, as, um, as we move forward uh, we we end the segment. Uh, she says something about uh, anger, and we I ask her about that anger. You know about that anger. What is that anger about? And uh, and in the next episode, she's going to talk to us about how she's converted that anger uh, into love. If you are present in the ceremony without trying to analyze it, uh, you know, too much analysis is paralysis. You know, it's like without trying to analyze, why are they doing that? This just to be so present that you can feel the energy, because again, I haven't mentioned that, but healing is about energy. You know, so that as you and I talk, there's an energy that's moving. There's an energy with the young man. There's an energy with you. There's an energy with the camera, as well, and it's that energy that goes from one person to another that is healing it's the energy in a relationship so when say i'm doing therapy i i could use any theoretical framework but it's the relationship that i develop with that person that's going to make that possible for that person to find that healing and i'm just an instrument you know i don't think well, one can do this. There's energy that goes. So, you know, in in uh, <clears throat> conventional psychology, Western psychology, uh, if you're going to be a therapist, they talk about you, you know, you have to be careful, don't touch people. You know, don't overstep this boundary. Don't have pictures on your wall that can identify something about yourself. And I said, that's crazy. You know, because we know, I mean, we, as, as a cultura, we touch each other. And in that touching, we are sending energy. So we, we do have to be careful how we're feeling when we're touching somebody. When, when you're doing a massage, you know that, right? And if someone's going to touch us, you know, I've had to sometimes jump, jump back. Because I can feel something from that person that I don't want. Or the same uh, in our voice. You know, how we use our voice. You know, does it uh, manifest kindness? All right, o siempre estamos gritando. How does it feel? I think you've told stories, verdad, about that. Of It's not the words. I used to work with a young man whose every other word was uh, the F word. I go, come on. 
that's boring. You know, well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I said, hey, I've heard them in probably 10 different languages. But it's not the word, it's the force, it's the energy that comes with that word that's damaging to people. So if we're doing talking therapy, we have to be very careful of our voice and what and think about what we're saying. You know, is it necessary? Is it useful? Is it helpful? Is it kind? In whatever we do, is it kind? As we come to a close today, I just uh, you know want to uh, really recognize you know all those elders that have come before us and the ancestors that stand with us. Um, that are still with us, that uh, that all we have to do is just take a deep breath, maybe uh, sing a sacred song, maybe play a drum, maybe a hymn, um, something that reminds us of our cultural ways. Sometimes we just have to be still and 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 in our spiritual center, just call to those ancient ones. And some of you may not know them by name, but they are with you. And the Maestro reminds us of that. So as we begin, you know, uh, this 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 journey of, of recovering our sacredness and healing generations, I, I call to you to to take time to uh, to reflect on what is the medicine within you. What what are those blessings that you carry, and what are the teachings that your ancestors have taught you? Um, even sometimes in difficult times, and, and many times in the most of difficult times. You know, um, we'll, we'll come back next week and, and listen to the teaching of how to convert anger into love. Uh, she will share with us about love being the most powerful medicine. And so I ask you uh, to love yourself and to love those people around you and to love who you are in, in, in all that it brings that uh, you come from a sacred root, you come from sacred people, and we come from sacred traditions. At the same time, we recognize that uh, that rootedness can help us. It can help us advocate and help us uh, go out there and, and demand that the racial equity and the social justice that we all deserve, that is part of all of us that way. Um, we thank you and, and we ask you to continue listening and if you go to nationalcompadresnetwork.org or healinggenerations.org or looking up the Brotherhood of Elders, uh, as we move on this journey uh, to healing generations, um, if you would like, you can send us some comments. Uh, hopefully it'll be positive. And, and also uh, some suggestions of anyone you'd like to hear from. If there's other people that you think uh, can share uh, some good teachings like this, we, we are open to inviting people to share, but also if there's some questions that you have around how we go about um, embracing our woundedness but healing generations, let us know that too. Uh, thank you and your ancestors, and, and may you have a blessed day. Omitil. For more information about Healing Generations and the Healing Generations Institute, visit nationalcompadresnetwork.org. And be sure to subscribe to stay up to date with our new releases.